I'm Eddie Glaude. I'm the president of the American Academy of Religion. I teach at Princeton. Um, and I'm delighted to be a part of this uh, presidential plenary panel. Uh, the board of directors uh, continue to grapple with the challenges that confront the members of the AAR. In some ways, the increasing precarity of the professoriate stands out as one of the more pressing issues uh, that has emerged in the context of the changing landscape of higher education in this country. Uh, with uh, various political forces and, and economic forces pinching in in various and different ways. I think the work of the Academic Labor and Contingent Faculty Committee has been absolutely central to helping uh, the board chart a new course for the AAR for the 21st century. So I'm delighted to serve as the presider for this plenary panel, a uh, panel sponsored by the Academic Labor and Contingent Faculty Committee, the Graduate Student Committee, and the status of LGBTIQ persons in the Profession Committee. This is protecting the vulnerable on campus. Of course, this is consistent with the theme of this year's conference, Religion and the Most Vulnerable. I'm going to just offer a brief description of, of the panelists. They will come in the order that I read them. Uh, I will int introduce them all, and then Cameron will come uh, to the podium. So the first is Cameron Partridge from Harvard University. Uh, the title of his paper is, Although the Doors Were Shut, Cultivating Courageous Community at the Borders of the Academy. Cameron is a theologian, openly transgender man, and Episcopal priest whose scholarly work focuses on theologies of gender, sexuality, and embodiment in pre-modern and contemporary Christian thought. After Cameron, Priya Prasad from the University of Florida, the title of her paper is, It Doesn't Always Feel Good, uh, Redefining Notions of Inclusion and Moving Beyond Diversity. Priya is a doctoral candidate in the religion department at the University of Florida. Her research focuses on Hinduism in the Caribbean and the intersection between religion, identity, and nationhood. Uh, following Priya will be Jim Keenan, uh, Boston College, Solidarity Within the Faculty. Uh, Jim Keenan, SJ, is the Canisius Chair, Director of the Jesuit Institute at Boston College, and the founder of Catholic Theological Ethics in the World Church, live network of over 1,000 Catholic ethicists. His most recent book is University Ethics, How Colleges Can Build and Benefit from a Culture of Ethics. Uh, following Jim will be Hussein Rashid, uh, Islamicate, LLC, uh, adjunct accounting for different vulnerabilities in vulnerable fresh professional positions, the title of his talk. He's also the founder of Islamicate, a consultancy focusing on religious literacy and cultural competency. His research interests focus on representations of Muslims in American popular culture. He has published academic articles on music, comics, I love that, comics, film and television, intra-Muslim racism, and digital humanities in the study of religion. And then lastly is Carrie Dana uh, of Georgetown University. The title of her paper is just Employment, Solidarity Among Campus Workers. Carrie is a part-time lecturer in the theology department at Georgetown. She earned her PhD from GTU in 2011 and currently co-chairs the AR's academic labor and contingent faculty group. Her research interests are in character formation economic justice, liberation theologies, and the moral imagination. And with that, I would like to invite Cameron to the vote. Thank you. Hello. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> 
It's good to be with you. Um, I am actually no longer of Harvard University, so we gotta remove that from, uh, from my bio, but with great affection, was there for a number of years. I am now at uh, St. Aidan's Episcopal Church in San Francisco, but I'll get to that. In September of 2013, I was still in the early days of the fall semester in my then two workplaces, Harvard Divinity School, where I was a course-by-course -course lecturer, as well as a denominational counselor for Episcopal and Anglican students, and Boston University, where I was half-time campus minister, again, for Episcopal and Anglican students. As I recall, I was teaching a course called Complementarity and Its Discontents, which explored and complicated Christian theological ideas of bodily dimorphism and heteronormativity. Then news broke across the country that at Azusa Pacific University, a Christian university based in suburban Los Angeles, Dr. H. Adam Ackley had been um, outed as transgender and within days had lost his position. A full-time professor who had taught in the Department of Theology and Philosophy there for 15 years, Dr. Ackley had no job protections since his position was not tenure track. His story blew up in the news and on social media. And one of those who, like me, reached out to offer him some support across the miles was Dr. Joy Layden, professor of English at Stern College for Women at Yeshiva University in New York. Dr. Layden had had her own harrowing experience in 2007 when she came out as trans. She was told she would no longer be allowed to teach, but that because she had tenure, she would still be paid. Dr. Layden had fought that decision and won, leading to her return to the classroom. I was openly trans, privileged to be teaching at Harvard Divinity School, which was very supportive of me as an openly trans man. And at the same time, I was very part-time in that position, not knowing from year to year whether and what I might have an opportunity to teach. For the last three of my years in the Boston area, I added adjunct teaching at Episcopal Divinity School as well. So I was part-time at HDS, EDS, and BU. When Dr. Ackley's situation began to unfold at AU, his precarity as a trans academic without job prote protection became acutely obvious. I found that this precarity made me aware of at least two things. First, I became more aware of the privileges I carry in not facing such basic rejection on a day-to-day -day basis. Privileges of my whiteness, educational privilege, religious authority as someone who's ordained, of being read as cisgender and as heterosexual, even though I, I identify with neither of those categories. At the same time, Dr. Ackley's experience, as well as Dr. Layden's, made my own precarity present to me in ways that I do not always allow myself to feel or to articulate. During the early days when Dr. Ackley's story was all over social media, I saved, I took a screenshot of a tweet that clearly expressed a distressingly widespread reaction to his job loss. It read, quote, file this one in the duh file, transgender theology professor loses job. For several years afterward, that tweet was saved on my computer desktop before I finally filed it out of sight. A stark reminder that to a wide range of people, such a basic vocational description is considered so oxymoronic that job loss should be the natural result. 
Since the election results of one year ago, of course, the vulnerability of so many people has grown exponentially. Amid this vulnerability and the states of emergency that communities face across the country in new, way, in new ways even as they already were facing them, including the trans community, and especially at the intersection of racism, xenophobia, and transphobia, it is important to say that there are some trans people, binary and not binary identified, who are teaching. We are in the academy. We are not an oxymoron. We currently appear to be more secure in religious studies departments, just anecdotally, than in seminaries. And this is crucial. This is really crucial. It is also harder to find trans women in all of the above teaching contexts underscoring how widespread and pernicious trans misogyny continues to be. So many of the legislative efforts that are seeking to foreclose access to trans people in public accommodations that have been proliferating even more in recent years, in fact, target trans women, and particularly trans women of color. And that's part of a wider culture of violence against trans women in general and trans women of color in particular. I don't have statistics for how many trans academics in either religious studies or who teach in the seminaries and divinity schools are contingent faculty. As far as I can tell, such statistics are not available. Yet I believe we are more likely to be among what some are calling the academic precariat, the collective of those whose academic employment is contingent and precarious. I say this because this supposition strikes me as consistent with what we do know about contingent faculty. Adjuncting has long been gendered feminine in relation to a tenured academy that is coded masculine, and it has also been raced as non-white. The practice of hiring part-time instructors may well have emerged, as Caroline Fredrickson explains in a 2015 essay, drawing upon the scholarship of Eileen Schell from, quote, a time when most schools didn't allow women as full professors, and thus adjunct positions were associated with female instructors from the start, unquote. In addition, according to a study by the American Federation of Teachers, quote, underrepresented racial and ethnic groups are especially likely to be relegated to contingent positions. Only 10.4% of all faculty positions are held by underrepresented racial and ethnic groups. And of these, 73% of the total minority faculty population are contingent positions. As Dr. Tressie McMillan Cottom has pointed out, quote, our current anger about class divides in higher education labor cannot be separated from its racist roots, unquote. Gay and lesbian people have been identified both as particularly drawn to the profession of teaching in some studies and as more likely than not to be among those who are contingent. Anecdotally, I've also observed and admired scholars who do, who do openly queer scholarship having a more difficult time obtaining tenure track or tenured positions. Meanwhile, contingent, non-tenure line faculty are now far and away the majority of all faculty across the United States. As Fredrickson observed, in 1969, almost 80% of college faculty members were tenure or tenure track. Today, the numbers have essentially flipped with two-thirds of faculty now non-tenure and half of those working only part-time, often with several different teaching jobs." Unquote. Of that two-thirds, just over 50% have part-time positions. 
Fredrickson also places this trend in a wider economic context, drawing on the work of Boston University's David Weil, who explained that, quote, the growth of contingent employment is usually driven by a focus on their core business or mission, unquote. If teaching is the core mission of higher education, he wonders, then what does it mean that, quote, colleges and universities have turned more and more of their frontline employees into part-time contractors, unquote, whom they pay very little and to whom they offer so few benefits. As of the fall of 2010, the median pay per course nationally was $2,700, or the equivalent of 24,000 annual salary, and ranged in the aggregate from a low of 2,235 at two-year colleges to a high of 3,400 at four-year doctoral or research universities. And that is from um, the new faculty majority info on adjunct site if you want to follow up on some of these numbers. Therefore, in an era where, where contingent faculty are more likely to be from minoritized populations, are more likely to be paid very little and to have less access to healthcare and other benefits from those positions, one way of decreasing vulnerability, as this panel has asked us to do, to talk about, is to be aware of this context, to be mindful of these trends and their history. Awareness of these trends can help us to assess our own academic contexts, to ask hard questions. But asking pointed questions can be very difficult, especially if the contingent faculty asking the question is doing so alone. This is where communal connection and collective advocacy comes in. Over the last decade, union organizing of contingent faculty and grad students, I would add, has increased significantly across the country. Locally, I know this has happened at Tufts and at Boston University, for instance. It's also been happening, I'm aware, at Roman Catholic universities, as Kaya Oakes has recently written about, and as I believe one of our panelists will also discuss. Oakes's piece, which came out this fall, noted that some schools that have actively resisted unions going against Catholic social teaching in the process. Oakes's piece referenced an earlier story about Mar Margaret Mary Voitko, I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name right, is that right? Um, an adjunct who taught for decades at Duquesne in Pittsburgh and who collapsed and died at age 83 while struggling with cancer not long after she had lost her longtime adjunct position. In appreciating the efforts to unionize contingent faculty in various places, potentially making the connections to the social teachings of some of the religiously identified institutions, I found myself wondering how many of some of the smaller seminaries and divinity schools have unionized contingent faculties. My guess would be not many. And in a trend where more and more Christian institutions of theological education are merging or seeking to radically reorganize themselves, I would ask how many are hiring full-time faculty at all, let alone those on the tenure track. How many are seeking to rely on all the more on contingent faculty? How much are these faculty being paid? Are they being asked to teach more online? If so, are online courses being paid at a different rate than in-person courses? These are difficult questions for individual adjuncts to ask 
particularly if they are the only one or one of a handful of contingent faculty in a given context. In addition to potential isolation, what can make it hard to contemplate, let alone ask these questions, is how much people love teaching and long simply to do it, no matter what. For me, one of the most striking moments in the story of Margaret Mary Voiko, the woman who collapsed and died in 2013, was a comment made by Voitko some years earlier in an interview with a campus publication. There she described teaching not so much as a source of income, but as she put it, a devotion. In response, L.V. Anderson, who authored a long piece in Slate about Voitko, comments rightly, seeing teaching as a devotion does not preclude relying on it for income. Teaching can and should be both." Unquote. That language of devotion strikes me as beautiful. I identify with it as one who loves teaching. Such devotion, however, can make contingent faculty vulnerable, perhaps particularly in institutions that teach the practice of particular traditions, although I don't know if that it's necessarily that special in that case, but institutions that are struggling to survive or to develop in new, more nimble ways, there may be a temptation to hire more contingent faculty and to pay them very little, counting in some ways on their devotion. And for those who are not cisgender, straight, upper middle class, and white, for those of us who are trans, especially in this intensely hostile national climate, in an already scarce academic job market, that vulnerability grows. Creating more awareness of this history, of these trends, and of these vulnerabilities can be overwhelming. But it also clarifies the need for support, solidarity, and community. In my tradition, one of my favorite stories is from the Gospel of John, when the resurrected Jesus shows up in an upper room to reassure a group of very scared, sad disciples. One of the key details of this story is that the door was shut. Although the doors were locked, it says, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. That detail about the doors being shut has long raised questions in theological circles about the quality of Jesus's resurrected embodiment. So too have the wounds in his side and his hands, which he shows to this shell-shocked community. In the emergent field of trans-Christian theology, this passage seems to be becoming an important topos. I've loved, loved and written about it for several years, and it shows up in the transgender passion narrative that openly trans independent Catholic priest Shannon Kearns has written called Walking Toward Resurrection. You should check it out. Adam Ackley, who I mentioned at the beginning, talks about it as well in a published conversation called Transformative Teaching in which he participated with Joy Layden and me, led by Dr. Christy Upson-Saya, professor of religious studies at Occidental College. There, Ackley talks about the persisting wounds in Jesus's resurrected body as points of connection with other people, wounds that are shared across difference even amid their particularity, in his case, through the wounding impact of homophobia and transphobia. He also speaks of wounds as signs of survival. In her new book, Resurrecting Wounds, Living in the Aftermath of Trauma, Shelley Rambo also turns to this story in a similar spirit, using the resurrected yet still wounded Jesus to speak to the wounds of trauma. Such vulnerabilities, 
Such wounds, she says, ask us to witness them. Witnessing wounds are part of a vision of resurrection characterized by what she calls attesting to trauma and to transfiguring it. Although the doors of the tenure track job market have been closed to many, contingent faculty still stand in the academic room, lining its borders, increasingly filling its center. Some, indeed many, have experienced trauma along the way. The system itself, what Kaya Oakes called in that piece that I mentioned, the greater glory of the bottom line, increasingly lies at the structural source of, it increasingly contributes to the structural injustices, the trauma causing um, that's embedded when it, within its wounds. These wounds need to be witnessed. Their isolation need to be transformed into solidarity and to courageous community. Their witnesses raise questions for higher education in general, and I would underscore again, particularly for the changing worlds of the seminaries and divinity schools. I myself am now, very fortunately, um, and very happily in a different place than I was even a year ago, even as I remain very grateful for where I was a year ago. One year ago, I delightedly uh, began a new position as a full-time parish priest in San Francisco. I finished teaching a combined in-person online course for Episcopal Divinity School about several months into my tenure in San Francisco from across the country, even as EDS's own institutional life turned out to be entering a period of profound transformation and loss with all of its faculty losing their positions as EDS relocated to Union Theological Seminary in New York. My own higher education teaching vocation now is being activated through supervising a seminarian from Church Divinity School of the Pacific in Berkeley, while I also am working on a book project. I continue to be devoted to the vocation of teaching as a parish priest, a scholar, and a theologian. Although the doors are shut for so many, the room continues to be full. The wounds need to be witnessed that justice, solidarity, and transformation may emerge. Thank you. everyone, I'm Priya. Um, first, I'd like to thank the organizers for allowing me to speak at this important and timely panel. I would like to begin by telling you a story that illustrates the relationships between faculty, graduate students, and the larger community, the foundation of my talk today. In August, just after it was announced that Heather Hayard had been murdered at the Charlottesville riots, I received an email from the university president stating that white nationalist Richard Spencer requested a space to speak on campus. While the president found the speaker's presence to be deeply disturbing, and he denounced all statements and, and symbols of hate, he argued that we must follow the law, upholding the First Amendment and not discriminate based on content and provide access to a public space. Ironically, the letter also stated that the school strove to build an inclusive environment where hate is not welcome. Disgusted and furious, I posted the letter in full on my Facebook. 
I argued that Spencer should not be allowed to speak on campus because the school had an obligation to protect its students and stand up against hate. While most of the comments echoed my feelings, one person, a professor at the school, and also a faculty member in my own department, wrote that even though he found Spencer to be deplorable, we need to engage in their ideas, however deplorable, in order to overcome this as a functioning society. I am sure I don't have to tell you that this professor is a white liberal male. I was appalled, aware of my status and the consequences this could have for me in the department. I pointed out it was foolish to think that we could have a discussion with neo-Nazis and change their minds. Thinking this was a possibility, I argued, came from a place of privilege as a person not targeted by the group. Ridiculously, he claimed that as a nation, we had talked our way out of a lot of messes, including slavery, suffrage, and civil rights. I was incredulous. Could a college professor really be suggesting that we had talked our way out of slavery? Another friend pointed out that none of these things were solved simply by talking, but through actions. This is when things really spiraled out of control. He replied condescendingly, asking her, a woman of color, if she even knew who MLK was. I was disbelieving, unsure of how to respond to this insult. Luckily for me, I am friends with some very smart and intuitive women who knew that there was a power dynamic at play. They quickly went into action, pointing out his fallacies, reminding him that all those messes he claimed were in the past were still very much in the present, albeit in different forms, mass incarceration as a new form of slavery, for example. He didn't address any of their points, but skipped dismissively to make several other illogical comparisons without actually taking the time to listen to us. Later, on his own wall, he complained that our reactions were knee-jerk, that we wouldn't want know what to say to a racist, or, engage, or how to engage historically and intellectually with bad ideas, and that we didn't know how to think through challenging ideas. Here was a man who was throwing out fallacies, straw men, illogical comparisons, who was insulting, condescending, and dismissive, telling us that we didn't know how to engage in challenging ideas. Even more importantly, he was arguing that he could talk Nazis and white nationalists out of being racist while at the same time dismissing and insulting the respondents who were all, with the exception of one person, women and people of color, the very same people he claimed to be helping. Although I was furious, I did not think I could be more explicit about my feelings because I worried about the consequences of such actions. I was also painfully aware that although I'm friends with a lot of professors, some of whom are in the same department, no one had come to our defense. No one called him out for the way he spoke to us, even if they agreed with the position he was taking. While it's not surprising that a Facebook conversation escalated quickly, I think it is important to focus on the fact that this was a conversation between a professor and graduate students, because I think this says something about academia and the mask we often wear. At one point, he claimed that the school had made the right choice, the academic choice, the American choice, to which my brilliant friend Ashley responded that he was correct. She stated, this is the academic and American choice to allow white supremacists to gather on campus and have their say. But that is precisely the reason why people of color are not safe on academic campuses, nor generally speaking in the US. 
had trouble letting go of this experience. In the weeks that followed, the same professor would get into a domestic situation that confirmed our feelings about his inappropriate and violent tendencies. I was surprised, though, that when the graduate students met to discuss the recent turn of events and several women expressed concerns about having to work with him, the students largely excused his behavior and dismissed his concerns and the concerns of the women. It was then that I began to really understand that despite the diversity of our graduate body, despite all of our engagement with theories concerning gender, race, post-colonialism, etc., the actual structures which support various forms of repression remain not only steadfastly the same, but indirectly supported by our actions. That professor, white, upper middle class, well-educated, could not understand, could not feel what it was like to have another group deny your very right to exist. But it isn't just that he couldn't feel what it means to occupy a particular body space identity, but that by arguing adamantly for free speech, he felt good, accomplished, and purposeful. Protecting this abstract ideal was more important than the painful, messy reality. It allowed him to feel good about ensuring a diversity of opinions, even though that particular diversity undercut the whole notion of inclusion. He and us, when we engage in similar practices, hide behind all the right rhetoric, creating superficial changes, all while strengthening the very structures we seek to dismantle. An apt image for this is the well-known cartoon of the three boys watching a baseball game. For those of you that don't know the image, in the first panel, the boys of varying heights are trying to watch a baseball game behind a wooden fence. Only one boy, though, is tall enough to clearly see over the fence. In the second panel, the middle boy is given a box to stand on, and the third boy is given two boxes. In this way, all three can see clearly over the fence. In the last panel, instead of giving the boys boxes to the boys, the wooden fence is replaced with a chain link one, thereby removing the source of inequality so that the boxes are no longer necessary. Diversity initiatives have become those boxes, well-intentioned and helpful to an extent, but when we consider the bigger picture, it is not a permanent solution. So the question becomes, how can we help remove the wooden fences that we've created to provide true inclusion. True inclusion requires an honest evaluation of our own shortcomings. For academia to address the inequalities within our own institutions and in our society, we will need to be open to feeling the pain of others and admit when their pain is unknowable to us. This combined with changes in our departments and increased involvement in the larger community will allow us to steadily demolish oppressive structures. To this end, I would like to offer suggestions and changes in three areas. One, the relationship between faculty and graduate students. Two, the relationship amongst graduate students. And three, the relationship between academia and the larger community. First, it is necessary to break down hierarchies that are created in academic departments, particularly among graduate students and faculty. Although this is not true for every school, Departments and research universities have the tendency to treat graduate students as inferior instead of colleagues in training. I have witnessed faculty dismiss and devalue graduate concerns, and I've seen too many of my peers, mostly women, overcome, overcome with emotion because of the way a faculty has spoken to and treated them. 
As Kiamin notes in her article on abusers and enablers in faculty culture, the bullying students experience often creates anxiety over their writing and research. Instead of recognizing the toxicity of the environment, the abuse is normalized, and we expect graduate students to adapt, internalizing the message that this suffering is just part of the process. She writes that the viciousness in a reader's report masquerades as professional critique, and depression and anxiety becomes badges of honor that supposedly show how hard you are working. Amin points out that it is often difficult for a victim to identify their experience as abusive early on because abusers destabilize their victims by, by being both charming and manipulative. The victim is left questioning their feelings, and when they go to other faculty members, their concerns are dismissed as just being part of the graduate process. This abuse continues to happen because of the power that professors hold over graduate students. By changing the way we think of mentoring, the role the graduate students can play in the department, and increasing departmental transparency, we can undercut some of these tendencies. Mentoring should not be a one-way process, nor should one professor have exclusive hold over a student. By giving graduate students explicit access to a group of mentors in the department, and I know this is sometimes seen as a given, although it's not stated outright, it prevents one person from holding power over a single student. Mentoring should also be seen as an exchange of ideas and practices. While some faculty might have more experience than a graduate student, grads are often on the pulse, experimenting with new theories and strategies, and are usually more active with undergrads. Mentoring, then, is really an opportunity for graduate students and faculty to learn from one another. It is also vital that when a student expresses a concern, it is taken seriously and the faculty member is held responsible for their actions both within and out of the department. We have an ethical obligation to address inappropriate and violent situations, even when they occur in the private sphere, because they are indicative of a cycle of abuse and manipulation which also bleeds into the relationships in the public sphere. We are all painfully aware that academic, academia partly works through connections. Who you know is key to getting ahead. But we can use that networking system to our advantage as a way of holding people accountable instead of it being used as an excuse to avoid consequences. The moment we allow some people to move beyond judgment simply because they publish an influential paper or book, we provide them space to manipulate and abuse their, power, their position. Another way to hold departments accountable and promote transparency is by give, allowing a graduate student representative in faculty meetings. By participating in meetings, graduate students can learn how departments function, voice student concerns, improve communication between faculty and students, and contribute to the process which shaped the graduate experience. It is important, though, that the graduate student does not see this position simply as a CV filler, but that they accept and occupy the position with the intention of improving graduate-faculty relation. <coughs> I would also encourage better and more communication among graduate students within departments. Although the job shortage and general pressure of graduate school encourages intense competitiveness, we need to resist and provide a stronger support system for each other. Graduate school should not be a lonely experience, but it often becomes one because we all experience imposter syndrome and fear that, the fear that we are alone in our anxieties. I cannot stress enough 
how important it is to talk about your trouble writing, your inability to comprehend a particular topic, your conflicts with faculty members, your struggle to maintain a life-work balance, your desire to leave graduate school, your fears about the job market, etc. Speaking out loud about these things to others empowers you and reminds you that you are not alone. Talking about your relationship with your mentors and other faculty members is especially important for ensuring that they're not taking advantage of you and you haven't normalized their behavior. If the Weinstein incident has taught us anything, it is that people will quickly dismiss something as part of a culture, a way of being, unless we join our forces to insist that it is deviant and unacceptable. To this effort, it is necessary for graduate students to create spaces for dialogue away from the confinement of the department and actively seek engagement with other departments. In addition to challenging hierarchies within academia, we also need to open the doors of, acad of the academy and participate in the, our local communities. Too often we remain in the safety of our offices where we can write about and discuss various forms of oppression and draw neat boxes around issues instead of confronting their effects and the messiness of intersecting identities. Diversity initiatives attempt to fix this problem by inviting marginalized groups to the table, but this is not far enough if they only become props for advertising campaigns. We must ensure that their voices are taken seriously, their ideas are not co-opted, and that they are not forced to represent their entire group or deny part of their identity. In meetings, classrooms, and in conferences, we should promote a strategy used by the women in Obama's administration in which they amplified their, each other's voices by explicitly repeating the name of the person and their idea so that it could not be co-opted by another member of the group or dismissed without proper engagement. Furthermore, we should take responsibility for our own knowledge or lack thereof. Karen Kelsey, the author of the popular blog and book The Professor is In, recently reposted a tweet that said, I have a doctorate in psychology. I learned about Franz Fanon on Twitter. That tells you something about white supremacy in academia. Instead of applauding this person, a, a commenter in Kelsey's post, Nicole Carr, noted, but this is more an indictment of white mediocrity, white privilege, and their own internalized white supremacist thinking. They never Googled a famous black psychologist? Not once? They're not a student, they have a doctorate degree. Once you earn that degree, you become responsible for educating yourself. There, that tells you about something in white supremacy in academia, seems disgenuous precisely because it shifts all the blame to this nebulous white supremacist institution instead of considering their own investment in maintaining white supremacy via this feigned innocence. As Baldwin says, it is not permissible that the authors of devastation should also be innocent. It is the innocence that constitutes the crime. Marginalized groups should not bear the burden of educating others. We are trained to do research, to deconstruct, to critique arguments. We need then to put these skills into practice on ourselves. This is not to say that we won't make mistakes. Indeed, being called out for those errors, admitting them and growing from them is an important part of the process, but it should never be about us. Like mentoring, academia's relationship with local communities should be reciprocal. Unfortunately, conversations about reaching out to the local communities are often couched in ideas about writing in accessible language. In his article on accessible language, 
Hari Zayad notes that for many people who push for accessible language, education primarily goes in one direction, from those who have access to the academy to those who do not. Within this pattern, the streets and prisons can be understood to be worth only as much as they can be informed onto them, where they can be led, not where they can inform and lead. Instead of asking how we might make our spaces more welcoming to groups outside of academia, Zayad encourages us to figure out how we can support the spaces already being created by them and allow them to take the lead in their own revolutions. Again, we must resist our own egos in order to create and support structural changes. Finally, we need to ask ourselves what kind of teacher, mentor, researcher, person we want to be. Am I going to be the kind of researcher who gets so wrapped up in my own work, I refuse to give back to the communities who have given so much to me? Am I going to be the cynical, dismissive teacher, unsympathetic to my students, or will I be the kind of teacher who takes time to reach out to the student who never shows, who seems disinterested and distracted? Am I going to be the advisor who is harsh, using the excuse of tough love to be cruel to my advisees, or will I choose to inspire them and remind them they are worth more than any paper, grant, or degree? Am I going to be the graduate student who will be so driven for my own desire for success that I will hide tips and tricks and refuse to improve the department I entered? Or will I, be, will I know that my success is not diminished by helping others achieve their own? Am I going to be the person who complains about academia? Or am I going to be an advocate for a better and healthier system? I will end with the words of Andre Lord, who has always relit the fire within me and given me hope to try again. In Sister Outsider, she writes, I was going to die, if not sooner than later, whether or not I had ever spoken myself. My silences had not protected me, your silence will not protect you. The women who sustained me through that period were black and white, old and young, bisexual and heterosexual, and we all waged a war against the tyrannies of silence. They all gave me a strength and a concern without which I could not have survived intact. Within those weeks of acute fear came the knowledge, I am not only a casualty, I am also a warrior. Thank you. First, I want to thank uh, Carrie Dana for uh, putting this panel together. It's a nice, diverse, um, engaging uh, group, and um, the originality of it, as well as the scope, is uh, commendable. Thank you. I'm going to speak on the solidarity within the faculty um, by focusing on tenure line and contingent faculty. I want to present three points. I first want to discuss the isolating, individualistic world of the faculty. Then I want to, uh, then what I call the geographical landscape of the university, and I want to conclude on why solidarity within the faculty is urgent. So first, the isolating individualistic world of the faculty. Twenty years ago, while editing a collection of essays on professional ethics for church ministry, I received from M. Sean Copeland an essay not about the church, but about the academy, entitled, Collegiality as a Moral and Ethical Practice, 
She wrote about a young black woman theologian who found that her white colleagues were as strikingly naive about their privilege as they were about her own challenges. Copeland focused not only on their self-understanding, but also on the isolating character of our training and our working in the academy. Unlike most professionals and civil servants, we university faculty function very much as individuals in the academy. Aside from department meetings, we study alone, work alone, teach alone, write alone, and lecture alone, except for today. We also grade students individually and write our own singular letters of recommendation. We don't do any collectives. We cannot underestimate the individualism of our scholarly formation and our professional lifestyle. While almost every contemporary professional works, uh, while almost every contemporary professional works in some form of partnership or teamwork, police officers with their partners, firefighters with their ladder companies, healthcare workers with their team, lawyers with their firms. We faculty train alone and then work virtually alone. Think of the dissertation. What other field of work requires its professional formation to be spent at least four years of working alone on one's own project with the last two years spent effectively in solitary confinement? Why is this? the highest expression of academic wisdom so individualistic and so isolationist. Someone might say, yes, but there is mentoring. How even, however, even the relationality in the mentoring is not terribly thick. How many hours during those four, five, or six years, that's 35,040 hours, 43,800 hours, and 52,560 hours, does the advisor and the mentee actually see and sit with one another? Is it at all analogous to any other professional relationship where juniors literally shadow their mentor? Is this like other forms of mentorship? One interesting corollary of the, to the highly individualistic world we work in is found in the university's prescription that we write with a detached, inaccessible, frigid, dense style. An emotionally detached place like the academy trains us to be wary of writing anything accessible to others outside our field because it could compromise the style of a professorial re reputation. Martin Anderson describes well academic publishing, quote, an academic book or a scholarly article is not expected to sell many copies nor appeal to many people outside a select individual intellectual circle. Thus isolated, the typical academic intellectual operates freely, uninhibited by the judgment of outsiders, subject only to the verdict of colleagues who themselves are judged by the same narrow criteria. Certainly, many tenured faculty have great relationships with a variety of members of the university. My argument, however, is that professionally speaking, there is not a structure that promotes those relationships. Teaching, grading, and mentoring is measured against singular professionals. But it is not just in those areas of university work that we are standalone individuals. Think, for instance, of office hours. I love office hours. What other professional corporate life lets their employees come to work whenever they want to? 
Other than the classes we teach and the occasional monthly departmental meetings that we may have to attend, most faculty can choose to arrive for any office hours they want, at least if they're tenure line. Not only are we free to name our office hours, but there is rarely any expectation to host those hours during any specific time that would be convenient to those who are seeking them. By office hours, we are required to be available to another person, presumably a student in need. Yet we can set those hours whenever we want, and rarely are we required to be there in the office for more than four or five hours a week. What other professional has such autonomy? Note, I'm not suggesting that faculty have only four hours of work. With teaching, letters of recommendation, publishing, and other academic demands, many faculty have a full week of work. But that work is on our time, in our place, and usually, again, alone. Hardly any other modern professional works this way. I have a good friend. He was the CEO of the New York Stock Exchange. He says, you know, where I work, we're all together on the floor. Where you work, you're all in offices alone. Big spectrum difference. Still, we should be able to see that when individual faculty take the initiative to enter into practices of solidarity with others, this can lead to the possibility of developing and sustaining an ethical community within the university. When faculty elect to join a seminar, volunteer to be on a university committee, offer to be the faculty advisor of a student club, or host their class at home with a meal, they enter into relationships that make possible community, but these turns to the practices of solidarity of themselves turns to ethical practices. With ethics, community can flourish. Without ethics, the community breaks down. Second, the university's geographical landscape. The isolating nature of the professoriate is well accommodated and protected from much of the, from much of the lives of our students. As faculty, we do not know much, as we once did, about our students' lives. We don't know where they live, whether they receive merit or need-based scholarships, nor do we know which ones have been hospitalized or arrested over the weekend. We only know about such issues incidentally. As Julie Rubin explains with the reforms of the 1890s, faculty effectively withdrew institutionally from concerns about their students' private lives. The faculty's ignorance of their students' personal lives is not only explained by the isolated nature of our present vocation, but also by the social contours of the university that do not foster community, friendship, or solidarity, but rather departmentalizes personnel groupings routinely. Just as faculty do not know much about their students, Neither do other university employees know much about others at the so-called university. Plant managers, cafeteria workers, student affairs deans, financial aids offices, admissions boards, custodial workers, trustee members, campus ministers, university police, and librarians. Each have their own definable domain, and their members know mostly what happens within that domain. Rarely are there occasions to go beyond one's domain, except when they go to university sporting events. The university might think of itself as a community, but it's a thin one at best. Any reading of the literature on the life of the university tells us that the university's structure is very clear in its vertical direction. 
Each cluster knows without a doubt who answers to whom in the upwardly oriented structure of unilateral accountability. The university horizontally is not terribly clear because its terrain is defined by departments unto themselves. I think that the university horizontal structure is best understood as fiefdoms, a perfect description of the university inasmuch as both are deeply rooted in the medieval world. I believe that the university stems as it does from the medieval era, is affected structurally in its roots. Not only does its hierarchical structure make its accountability flow unilaterally and singularly vertically, but it also inherits the geography of fiefdoms that hinders matters not only of accountability and transparency, but also of relationality, distributive justice, and the common good. There is very little horizontal accountability at the university. I, I know uh, my department, you know, I have an endowed chair. I, I could easily say, why don't you show up for some office hour once a month? Uh, but that's not part of the culture of the university. I can go to my chair and say, why don't they do something? And then the chair can decide that. But that vertical move is the only move that happens. The horizontal is very rarely there. Even when we know abuse that goes on, there's no culture of horizontal accountability at our universities. Universities are organized by departments, a structure that gives the suggestion that each department shares something in common with another. But given the hierarchical structures of the university, such a shared identity functions less in the operations and more in the purported mission design. Departments are part of the fiefdom structure, in part because higher level administrators can treat departments differently without others in other departments knowing any differently. In fact, in many ways, these administrators function as feudal lords. Life within the department is determined much less by what happens in other departments as by what happens between senior administrators and that department. I will return to this point in closing. Fiefdoms are not only seen in academic departments, but in students' affairs as well. Just as faculty might not know the student's personal conduct, Neither does student affairs know the student's academic life. Similarly, health and counseling services, development, alumni relations, athletics, dining services, and many other departments function separately and are accountable to the different university managers who make their own assessments according to their specific domain's criteria. In short, the standards, communications, and information of each domain are not set across the university itself but are particular to and remain within the domain of that particular fiefdom. It is for this reason that the only two constituencies who know what occurs across the university are the clients, that is, the students and the president. In terms of ethics, this is fairly problematic because as we know from Aristotle, there is some relationship between the polis or the actual community and the common good that makes possible human flourishment. That is, to the extent that members of the polis as a society participate in and contribute to the common good, there is human flourishment. But at the university, the players on the ground do not see a coherency in the community nor an operative notion of the common good. The bureaucracy of the university does not have an internal horizontal structure of engagement, 
nor are there any inbuilt structures of horizontal accountability within the university. Worse still, the bureaucracy at the university shows no sign of checking itself, continues expanding, and eventually will no longer be sustainable. All these challenges prompt us to ask how can we overcome the obstacles to good community and provide a sharing of the common good. When we hear the hardships of adjunct faculty and when we see rising tuition, whether uh, another unsustainable solution, coupled at the same time with expanding bureaucracies and their attendant appointment, appointments and competitive salaries, we realize that the university's fiefdoms are very much the most compelling of all its challenges. Inasmuch as the university is partitioned by fiefdoms, so are the ethical issues. University critics tend to focus on one ethical issue, but they do not address other related ones. Student affairs is familiar with sexual assault and binge drinking. Faculty are more familiar with cheating, and neither know really what athletics is doing with the athletes. <laughs> These four topics remain in their own unconnected silos or fiefdoms. Similarly, only deans and department chairs usually know about the adjunct faculty, and few dare to address the responsibilities of the post-tenured faculty. A conclusion, why solidarity is important. At Boston College, as I was finishing my book on university ethics, I became the director of the Jesuit Institute and started several interdisciplinary faculty seminars there. I started one on economic inequity, another on sustainability and outcome and home, another on mental health, stigma, and suffering. One seminar that I maintained from my predecessor was designed to introduce tenure-track faculty to one another. I decided I wanted to parallel that seminar with a new one for our full-time contingent faculty. As distinct from part-time adjunct faculty, at Boston College, we have roughly 170 full-time contingent faculty whom we call professors of the practice. These professors of the practice receive promotion and tenure and uh, merit increments. I invited, and we have roughly, uh, as I say, 170 on our faculty as such. I invited 18 such professors from across the university to join a seminar. Their first meeting was like a homecoming. These faculty who had been here on average of at least 12 years were now meeting each other on a regular basis. They had not met one another because the occasions for many full-time professors of the practice or contingent faculty to meet fellow faculty outside the department is rare. Still, one insight that emerged clearly, though most professors of the practice do a fair amount of teaching and love it, as you were describing, um, they also do a fair amount of administrative work, lecturing, and publishing. The diversity among full-time contingent faculty parallels that among tenured faculty. When my book, University Ethics, was published, this group of um, professors of the practice, their seminar, they called themselves the Jesuit Essentials, since the Jesuit Institute was hosting them, the Jesuit Essentials made the book required reading for their seminar and then decided to host a conference on university ethics at Boston College last April that brought 450 faculty and administrators from 45 different schools to our campus. It was a great success connecting the ethical issues across the campus. Ethics then provides the link between the isolated topics. 
With a science that investigates what constitutes right and wrong behavior, we should be able to recognize each of these ethical interruptions across the campus so as to respond to the overall lack of a culture of university ethics. Not only does ethics teach us what is wrong with the university, it can also provide us with ways for seeing how the university could be made right. Since hosting the conference, our seminar is addressing, and we're now in our uh, fourth year. Since hosting the conference, our seminar is addressing a number of issues. One recent issue might give you an idea of how isolating the world of the department is and how it affects both professors of the practice and the tenure-line faculty. At our seminar, we learned that in one department, the executive committee of that department, together with its chair, decided that in the recruitment of candidates for a newly opened tenure-track line in the department, only the tenured and tenure-track faculty members would know about the hire and would have access to the candidates' applications. In fact, they decided that none of the professors of the practice should know at all. Effectively, the professors of the practice in this department did not know until word leaked out. These professors of the practice, who are members of the seminar of the Jesuit Essentials, tried to find out how other departments proceeded. And what they found out was that we have about 14 departments included in these 18 um, professors of the practice, that each department had a different policy that changed annually about what is the role of full-time contingent and contracted faculty in, in recruiting tenure-line faculty. One department, for instance, which was at the other end of the spectrum, not only gives access to all um, professors of the practice to review applications for tenure-track lines, but also that person can vote to decide whether or not this person will become a member of the department, which makes sense because we're not talking about a promotion of the person, we're talking about their entry into a community that purportedly the contingent faculty already has a full-time relationship with. Subsequently, the chair realized that he should have done better and decided to recruit some of the professors of the practice to share with our committee to see how he should do a new policy. And now we have a new one, but we'll see how long it lasts. Let me close by sharing a personal experience of coming clean about contingent faculty. I want to come clean with you in choosing so as to suggest that you might do the same, especially for those of you who are tenure-line faculty. I don't know how many of you are tenure-line faculty, but usually whenever I speak at these, it's mostly contingent faculty. And so any of you who are tenure-line faculty, welcome. I'm glad you're here. This is good. This is a sign of development. I want to come clean with you in closing so as to suggest that you might do the same. For coming clean is, I think, the first step for working for a culture of ethics at a university. In my 15 years at Boston College, I have worked on faculty development, mentoring junior tenure-track faculty, and developing programs for graduate students from advising and mentoring to starting a culture of teaching formation in our doctoral program. When I was doing my book on university ethics, I learned a lot about contingent faculty, but next to nothing about the actual contingent faculty at my university or in my department. As I researched more and more, I realized that the gulf between the tenured faculty and adjunct faculty has few secure ways of passage connecting us. Like other tenured faculty, I had unconsciously, but conveniently, 
worn blinders about their work and their context. I managed to tell myself that they did not concern me. They do, but I managed to tell myself otherwise. A few years ago, an adjunct, who is also a journalist, Lisa Liberty Becker, here in Boston, asked to interview me for Boston Magazine because she was writing on adjunct faculty and heard that I was writing this book on university ethics. In the course of the interview, she concurred that I had a pretty good handle on the issues that adjuncts face. But before we descended into the details, she asked me an important question. What do you know about the adjunct faculty at your own institution? Next to nothing, I replied. I have managed to tell myself that they do not concern me. Still, I'm acting chair next semester. Assuredly, I'll find out. I make this con confession simply to let the tenure-blind faculty get some space to acknowledge that they probably conveniently do not think about contingent faculty either. There is within the university structure a cultural myopia that allows us to not think about them. It is the fault of the structure of the university, but it is our fault too. Those same faults allow us to ignore issues of race, gender, and, and class, student athletes, sexual assault, binge drinking, unsustainable tuition, unaccountable faculty, and the rest. If you resonated with the, my argument here, I ask you to consider how the university in its structure and how the professoriate in its vocation have given you the chance to pursue your own academic interest without bothering you about a culture of ethics at the university. If you can, think for a moment, have you allowed yourself to settle into that complacency? And if you have, should you not admit that? Recognizing how we really think of one another among the faculty at the university strikes me as a worthy starting point for any discourse on such ethics. Thank you. Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you for being here today. Um, I want to start, well, I, I really do, first of all, really sincerely thank you for being here today. Uh, the panel I was at before this one was a panel on teaching Islam, which looks like it had about 25% more people in it than this audience does. So we have a topic that applies to a small subsection of the AAR that's drawing in more people than topics that relate to the entire structure of the academy. And so what does that tell us about the ways, and I think following off Jim's wonderful talk, the ways in which we think about how our academy is structured, our universities are structured, and how isolated we are from those realities. And I think following up on Jim's point, I'd also like to do a quick poll for those of you who are comfortable. How many of you are contingent faculty here right now? How many of you are tenure track? How many of you are tenured? Okay, so at least there's a nice break between uh, the contingent faculty and the tenure track tenured faculty, which is not traditionally, Carrie, I think has not traditionally been the case. I'm delighted that it's been years past about people paying attention to this issue, so thank you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, thank you very much. Um, just before I move on from the thank yous, I also wanna thank our interpreters who do a tiring job and do work to make sure our panels are accessible, so thank you uh, to our our interpreters. 
Um, when I was introduced by uh, Eddie, I was introduced as coming from Islamicate, which is the name of my consultancy. Um, I am academic adjacent. I do work at a university. Uh, but my attitude has been that if I am only getting paid to do work, you only get free advertising if you pay for me to be here. So um, nobody's paid for me to be here except me, myself, and I. So I get all that credit. Um, so when I was putting together the proposal for this presentation, my goal was to document the various ways in which adjuncts are vulnerable to different systems of oppression. Many of these systems are embedded in the university itself, and some are externalities that non-contingent faculty do not consider. And I think Priya and um, uh, walked us through some of those uh, so through some of those issues. Um, what you can do is you can go to books like Presumed Incompetent or Written Unwritten to read some of these stories and the structural issues involved. I recall the New York Times also ran a series of stories in the Salon story um, about uh, adjuncts, including homeless adjuncts or adjuncts who died penniless because they were adjuncting, because it was an act of devotion. However, I believe that there is power in telling and retelling these stories. Sometimes they need to be said over and over again to have an impact. Sometimes the sheer weight of even a fraction of the stories makes the listener realize how deep and terrible the work of adjuncts is. Sometimes our audience claims ignorance because it's not like that at their school. By telling multiple stories consecutively, I wanted to highlight their common pressures and their distinct pressures on different adjunct populations that connect race, religion, gender, and sexuality. The two themes I wanted to trace were on free speech and student impact. I still intend to do some of this work, but not to the depth at which I'd originally planned. Since the time of the proposals had to be submitted to now, there are a slew of issues related to higher education that seem to bury the concerns of adjuncts. But from my perspective, the higher ed issues emerging from the current presidential administration and universities' inability to organize and fight back against these policies that threaten their existences are a direct result of accepting and encouraging adjunct labor. Once a university devalues their workforce, the product and source of that workforce is devalued. Contrary to popular rhetoric, the primary product of universities is not research papers or growth of the endowment, but an informed, educated, and critical graduate. I come from the John Dewey School of Education. Higher education, by tying itself to neoliberal policies, such as the reliance on adjuncts, are structuring themselves out of relevance and existence. It is no wonder in my mind that as we see an increase in adjuncts, we see an increase in the closing of institutions of higher education. Because when you say what we do is worthless, you're saying you are worthless. I want to start by talking about the impact on students. I can start by saying that an increase in adjunct labor decreases the student experience or degrades the student experience. But it's not from the teaching perspective. Numerous studies have indicated that adjunct faculty are rated higher as educators than full-time faculty, full-time tenure-track faculty. Therefore, the issue is not the quality of the education students receive. Adjuncts, in fact, excel in their educational mission. Primarily, where students feel the impact is the availability and access to students. And here, I want to share a couple of my personal stories with you. I wrote a piece for P Political Theology Today for one of my uh, mentors, Kelly Baker, who used to be on the academic uh, labor and contingent faculty, but we were the contingent faculty task force, um, where I wrote, quote, we know that as adjuncts struggle to, commun 
We know that as adjuncts struggle to commute to multiple locations to teach, their availability to students becomes limited. Even with explicit mention to students that they, adjuncts, need to leave campus to be able to afford to live, something which many of my colleagues are reluctant to do, students generally only understand the direct impact on themselves. Therefore, they internalize that a highly educated person is not compassionate, not empathetic, and not interested in her students. As a result, education is linked through conditioning to negative emotional responses. Students experience education as a dehumanizing event. Even if a student accepts the economic concerns of the adjunct, what they understand is that education is not valued in a neoliberal society which indexes worth to price slash salary, end quote. I stand by this assessment. At one point, I was teaching at three different schools at the same time, and I probably spent more time in transportation each week than I did in the classroom. If a student needed additional help and could not make my office hours, I could not meet the student. If a student was going through a personal difficulty, all I could do was refer her to her academic advisor. Sometimes I had seniors who did not know who their academic advisors were. Faculty were the first and only point of contact with the university outside of the registrar or financial aid if that was a separate office. Yet, despite this situation, my evaluations remained positive, with one student saying that I was one of the most accessible faculty members that he's ever had. That a student can be so neglected from my perspective, but well-tended from his perspective, tells us something about the expectations of students now. They understand that they have been devalued. When the college makes clear that it will not invest in student education, but is increasing student applications and acceptances, they, the students, instinctively understand that their value is as an income source. Whatever ancillary support services a school chooses to provide are inherently in conflict with the dehumanizing approach of the school to students. Let us look very specifically at, a recent, at the recent removal of the entire writing department's adjunct staff at SUNY Stony Brook. This move essentially kills the department, but since the courses are mandatory, the courses will be taught by full-time faculty from other departments, such as geology and math. There are two questions that we are left with then. Are these faculty members qualified to teach writing and rhetoric? And it is a specific skill set. And what does it mean for the faculty's teaching load and other courses that they offer? Are courses in geology and math going to fall by the wayside? So we can now teach the writing and rhetoric department. The rationale for these cuts is that the department could no longer afford the 20 instructors that they were paying an average of $3,750 a course to teach. I want to reiterate, $3,750 a course, not a month, not a credit, a course in New York City for three and a half months. That is $1,000 a month to live in New York City. Just to think for a second. Assuming each instructor offered two sections a semester, that means that the total cost of the entire department is $300,000 for the entire year. Those of you who teach in small departments know how much $300,000 will get you. There are no hidden or sunk costs in this faculty cohort. Many of you who teach in five-person or larger full-time departments will recognize that $300,000 is a bargain for 20 people. In fact, that's why universities want adjuncts, to steal pay and dignity from them and offer students the impression that their education is important. 
Any student paying attention will realize that Stony Brook is treating their faculty as disposable and their students' education as an afterthought. Simply because a geologist can write does not mean that she can teach writing. I did an undergraduate degree in biology, and yet I'm not hired in biology departments. Although if anybody is interested, I will teach for food. <laughs> the university is signaling that expertise is irrelevant. It is a logical outcome of paying less, an, paying less an hourly wage than Costco. If you do not want to pay individuals commensurate with their experience, then it, it signals that expertise is not worth paying for. When you've established that as a norm, then universities do not need to have specialist teaching. You simply need the cheapest labor able to do the work that will generate income, read tuition for the school. When anyone can do anything, when you don't need expertise, you don't actually need an educational system. It is a symbolism of elitism to have a formal education and one that requires experts. I hope you can see that the argument that I'm making connects to much of the political rhetoric that exists in American society today around the role of experts and the elitism of an education. The statement, of course, may sound political because it is, and not in a Foucauldian sense. In Wisconsin, we saw at the time then Governor Scott Walker, who never went to college, attempt to rewrite the mission statement of the state's university to exist only to train to meet, quote, the state's workforce needs, end quote. In other words, students pay the school to become apprentices. You do not need topic experts to teach students to be good employees. In fact, critical thinking is anathema to the neoliberal need for human automata. In addition, the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, infamous for its higher fire, Stephen Salata, had a board of trustees that believed it was obligated to serve the interests of the state. That the university itself should not be an independent agency or even a political agency within the state, but simply a tool of the state. Therefore, it is thus a surprise that they would reject a contract for a faculty member who had public opinions. The constant erosion of the authority of the university as a place where education and learning are paramount creates a situation where external pressures will force universities to contend with its hollowed out core. In all instances, it is the marginalized communities who are left adrift by the university that are being affected by those external pressures. As we've heard, women are disproportionately represented in contingent labor positions. People of color are also disproportionately represented. The net result is that a woman of color is 50% more likely to be contingent faculty than an equally trained white male. Part of that is an inability to hire on professional skills alone, or to recognize the different career paths that marginalized communities have to take to get on the academic job market. Therefore, it is logical to see that, fac that the faculty, both full-time and contingent, who are at the forefront of public discipline and who are at the forefront, sorry, therefore it is logical to see that the faculty, both full-time and contingent, who are at the forefront of public discipline and, by, and neglect by the university are marginalized communities. Cornell faculty recently wrote a letter to Drexel University objecting to the placing of George Sicarelio Mahar. Am I saying his name right? No? Okay. Uh, on leave after comments he made after the Las Vegas shooting, linking the shooting to white supremacy. While full-time rather than contingent, he comes from an economically marginalized background. In that letter, the Cornell faculty named several other faculty who were disciplined or fired for speaking on topical issues. These faculty include Lisa Durden, who was fired from an adjunct position at Essex County College for defending an all-black gathering of Black Lives Matter. She's a black woman. 
Other full-time faculty include John Eric Williams at, John, at Trinity College, a black man, and Thomas Curry at Texas A&M, a black man, and Tessa Winkleman at UNLV, a woman. All of them speaking on questions of Black Lives Matter or gun violence in this country. There is every indication that while universities have moved to contingent labor to save money, the added bonus was to quell any public discourse that might threaten revenue streams. Of course, the guild mentality of academia that eschews public-facing engagement enabled the shift and a disregard for the primary role of academics to educate the public. We often forget that our students are a public, and as educators, we are always engaging a public. The faculty at the margins are often teaching against their own marginality, both in practice and in theory. It is that research, education, and voice that is disciplined both within the university and outside of it. Without the protections of tenure, a union, or a contract, those voices are silenced. Now, as faculty, now as faculty are recast as economic agents, rather than educational agents serving a common societal good, they are treated as owing direct economic value. The Trump tax scam is simply making explicit what we have done implicitly. Graduate student tuition waivers will now be taxed. Forbes magazine estimates that a grad student at a private R1 will see an increase of about $10,000 per year in their tax bill. In other words, students will pay more in taxes than they will earn in direct payment from the university. This taxation structure may eventually have an impact on the grants at the undergraduate level as well. The other federal guidance that will have an impact on the university is Title IX. Our ability to defend our students on issues of gender and sexuality will be put to the test. We have undercut faculty ability to speak out on these issues and have ceded the rhetorical ground for the issue to be about political correctness rather than individual safety and agency. More importantly, universities have not had the best record in dealing with issues of sexual assault and the Obama era dear colleague rules were meant to help adjust some of the processes for some sort of standard, to establish some sort of standard. The lack of guidance may now mean more latitude in ignoring a growing concern amongst the student body, but not actually changing a reality that has gone unreported for far too long. Recent examples of faculty, of, recent examples of faculty misconduct, including CEO Young Chu's recent essay of rape by a senior faculty member at Stanford, should concern us about what we are not willing to admit about our own discipline. We are not immune to abuse. I speak from no special knowledge but an awareness that power structures in the academy are no different than any other industry, and so we are open to the same types of abuses. I am not convinced that victims are in a power position to speak out, nor will they have enough allies in power positions to support them within our own field. At this point, I want to applaud Priya for offering us a way forward and giving us suggestions, both as a rhetorical device to give us hope, but also to make her talk practical. I have no hope to give. To give hope is an act of labor, and that requires payment. I got some. And at this point, I have no grand conclusion about adjunct vulnerabilities. This presentation is simply an affirmation that 2017 is terrible. However, I want to tell the stories of adjunct issues to make the weight of them underscore a reality of what adjuncting means to someone who needs to understand the depth of the problem. It is not just on the adjuncts but on the students and the erosion of what we're supposed to stand for as academics. The burden of hope should not be on the victims of the structure, but it should be on the people who perpetuate and create those structures that keep us at the bottom of the pile. Thank you. Thank you everyone for being here today and thank you um, 
Eddie and Cameron and Priya and Jim and Hussein for the much of what's already been said. I'm going to allude to some of what has been said and kind of adjust as we go since I've had the pleasure of hearing everybody now. <laughs> um, so I'm going to take a step back a little bit um, and look at the broad broader context. So in May, Intuit Brad Smith reported that roughly 34% of all jobs are gigs, short-term without benefits, and the number's supposed to rise to 43% by 2020. This isn't happening because 40% of Americans want to work short-term contracts, right? It's because other types of jobs are not available and because of growing income inequality. It's the culminating effects of changed business practice, some of which already been alluded to. So just to briefly recap, in the 1980s, business practices turned to identifying and streamlining core competencies and increasing financial flexibility by relying on short-term and long-term contractors. For the past near 40 years, a growing number of employers, from corporations to nonprofits to universities, distanced themselves <clears throat> from their workers in an effort to save costs and in turn obscure responsibility for their welfare. Not surprisingly, during this time period, wage theft has also risen substantially. The Department of Labor reports that weekly minimum wage violations in California and New York alone amounted to an estimated 1.6 to $2.5 billion of lost wages for workers over the course of 2011. This doesn't include overtime that wasn't paid, but do people. That's just for lost wages from minimum wage work. Gig workers also have to pay their own health care, sometimes resulting in more expensive or lower quality care, have no paid vacation, and result in increased um, psychological and physical stress. Also, a number of universities um, when they even have union contracts, right, the, the unions themselves still put in there that if there's discrimination issues and they need to put a, a bias case, you have to go through the university system, right? So that's another kind of factor um, that has changed, particularly the university system. In regards to income inequality, the average CEO worker to income ratio in 1980 was 42 to 1, but by 2014, that ratio had ballooned to 373 to 1. And since the recession ended in 2009, more than half of all job growth has been in low-wage work, right? So higher education isn't um, exempt from any of these trends. But between 1976 and 2011, university administrator positions grew by 141%. Over the same period, university CEOs' pay grew by 175%, right? Well, part-time positions grew by 286%, and full-time non-tenure track by 259%. Meanwhile, many on-campus services such as bookstores, security uh, workers, food service workers, janitorial services, etc., have been outsourced. Many of these jobs pay minimum or just over minimum wage. In 2012, more than 700,000 university workers earned less than a living wage, and a significant percentage of food service, janitorial, groundskeeping, and security workers did not earn enough to meet the federal poverty le uh, level line of $24,000. Right, so that's slightly above what adjuncts are working. And this is important, I think, to kind of reset people's imagination here that adjunct faculty are paid right, the same as other types of workers on campus. And that should be a, not a rallying cry for just raising adjuncts' wages, but to me, raising everybody's wages, right? Because it's very hard to live on uh, minimum wage. With little pay, you can't put much into savings, you can't put money towards to retirement, and you're often not able to partake in campus life, 
right? Because it costs money to get to and from campus. For many people, that means costs of elder care or child care, which makes it prohibitive. So people aren't able to participate in the full life of the campus. Um, as I mentioned before, oftentimes people can't access health care. It depends on the um, outsourcing uh, arrangement, but oftentimes that's not. So on one hand, given the larger economic changes, the move to outsourcing and related rise in income inequality in higher education is not that surprising. On the other hand, there are important reasons why universities and campuses in particular need to reclaim these, um, uh, resist these trends and reclaim a narrative. So as Jim has pointed out in his 2015 book, University Ethics, the ethical and moral power of universities, whether real or aspirational, right, is certainly questionable at best right now. By and large, universities have failed to create, quote, a culture of ethical consciousness and accountability. And as Jim referred to, the silo effect is very much um, real and creates these horizontal bubbles. In the Journal of College and Character, Laura Harrison notes that when people do leave their silos, they tend to do so in a competitive context, right? Um, often pitting against um, kind of discourse that separates us, the needs of different departments or the needs of different um, areas of campus life. Also, racism and classism continue to be an obstacle towards working with um, those who are less paid and or of different backgrounds than others and creates additional barriers to creating solidarity and protecting the economically vulnerable on campus. So a matrix of pressures from widespread economic trends, the nature of academic work, the organization of higher education, and racism and classism have become obstacles to protecting the economically vulnerable. <clears throat> Addressing these discrepancies, though, is necessary to reclaim education's moral power, and even so more to positively impact the lives of the most economically vulnerable on campus. And I'm going to talk about five different tactics that could at least perhaps build the attitude, if not the duty, of solidarity. One, highlighting universities' anchor status. Two, holding universities accountable to their mission statements. Three, increasing student engagement on campus labor issues. And four, working with governance. And five, establishing, establishing campus uh, wide labor policies. So first, most higher education institutions are anchors for their communities, right, who, quote, who, whose physical presence is integral to the social, cultural, and economic well-being of the community. The 4,000 colleges and universities in the United States spend more than $400 billion annually, own more than $300 billion in endowment investments that we know of, not including the offshore ones we've just recently found out about, and employ roughly 3 million faculty and staff. Community engagement is also often written into the university's mission plan and strategic plan, into the curriculum, and as research and partnerships are tracked and evaluated. By and large, these anchor institutions offer tangible and intangible benefits to employees, including quality health care, retirement, matching intuition, and those who live nearby. But as Harrison points out, quote, when these anchor institutions outsource jobs or increase part-time employees to circumvent such investments in human capital, they harm the very communities they otherwise profess to support. Perhaps ironically, all universities, uh, by nature of their nonprofit status and mission, aim to strengthen knowledge, values, and positively impact the world. Religiously affiliated institutions, in addition to their nonprofit and anchor status, often have mission statements which expressly commit themselves to social justice and the common good. To the extent, to the extent such instit institutions have outsourced, labor or created tenuous employment, the campus environment loses moral credibility. Nonetheless, both of these factors provide powerful rhetorical tactics in the court of public opinion. 
and perhaps most importantly, I would stress most importantly, in the ethical imagination of students. Students hold a particularly powerful place in campus dynamics because they are most likely to engage with other parts of the university, both horizontally and vertically, as Jim had already spoken to. They know dining hall workers, they know security guards, and they know staff more intimately simply because they live on campus. <clears throat> Obviously talking about certain types of institutions here. But still, even those, I think community college, this is still the case. I would even suggest adjunct faculty actually often know their students better than their own colleagues as well. More practically, as tuition payers, they have heightened ability to get the attention of the administration. So students have been pivotal in raising wages for direct and contract employees at Georgetown, Harvard, and University of Miami. Educating and mobilizing students is an effective strategy to protect the most economically vulnerable on campus. I think all new staff at university should have to do some kind of this is how the university works seminar, right? Both for students and everybody else to understand how complicated a system is, but also to understand how power works within the university. Um, similarly, faculty, students, and staff can work with governance. Um, just earlier this month, the United Campus Workers, UCW, an affiliate of the Campus Workers of America, CWA, in Tennessee, Tennessee, so therefore without collective bargaining rights, <laughs> but they successfully stopped the outsourcing of all janitorial and repair jobs across the University of the Tennessee campus system. All right, this was an effort that was led by the governor, but workers approached governance, the faculty senate, about inflated savings estimates and harmful local effects at outsourcing. And they won, they were successful. And this points to the importance of functioning faculty governance that allows diverse stakeholders, including community members and students and all types of workers to bring justice to the attention of the faculty senate. Finally, all of these elements, anchor status, mission, students and government, governance together have and can protect the economically vulnerable on campus by establishing campus-wide policies. Loyola University of New Orleans and Georgetown have established a living wage policy. Georgetown established a broad just employment policy that protects the right to organize and includes an advisory committee on business practices. It's not perfect. For example, the continual challenge to adjunct issues is how universities calculate the time involved in teaching a course, right? Because they estimate how many hours just gets translated to a full-time equivalency percentage and that will trick off, uh, kind of um, tick off benefits or not. But, um, it also states in the Just Employment Policy that the university will, quote, create full-time jobs when possible and part-time or temporary work only when necessary, end quote. However, we also have over 1,000 adjuncts, right? About 550 tenure track and about 230 non-tenure line. So holding administrators accountable to this policy is a much, much harder task, but it's a step in the right direction and it provides, again, rhetorical tools to be used for accountability. So these five tactics, highlighting university anchor status, holding universities accountable to mission statements, increasing student engagement on campus labor issues, working with governance, and establishing campus-wide policies can build at least the attitude and duty of solidarity. Megan Clark writes, quote, the attitude of solidarity begins with the descriptive recognition of radical interdependence. We must highlight how all campus workers from faculty to secretaries, dining hall workers, and facility workers are all vital for the functioning of a university. And name how income inequality on campus undercuts the common good. Appreciation, while falling short of even the attitude of solidarity, at least opens up the possibility of its formation. I know it's, it's holidays time, and I always have that mixed feeling when the envelope goes around, right, to give uh, cash to the facilities workers. So on one hand, yes, 
they need the cash. On the other hand, working, why aren't we paying them more? <laughs> right? Should the institution be paying them more? Right? So there's this, this agonizing juxtaposition. Anyhow, <laughs> um, solidarity moves to duty when each person recognizes each other person as an image of God. And therefore, quote, equality, mutuality, and reciprocity places a claim upon the human person. The tactics above can begin to protect the economically vulnerable on campus, curbing outsources and reducing income inequalities of vital for campus flourishing and the moral formation of our, our students, but most importantly for the welfare of the economically vulnerable and the lowest paid workers on campus themselves. But only when we move to the protection for others, to the actual advocacy for others on campus beyond even, I would say, our fellow faculty is, uh, comes the full possibility of the virtue of solidarity. Thank you. So we've left ourselves uh, uh, a lot of time for conversation. Uh, so uh, we have microphones um, here um, uh, if you uh, have a question. So please come forward. Um, I, I have a question to the panel. Um, and. And it's, it's a descriptive claim, because I think there's, Cameron insisted that we have to bear witness. We have to you know, disclose the problem. And I'm wondering about the different strands, the different convergences uh, that has accelerated uh, adjunct faculty or contingent faculty, right? Do you think about um, Clark Kerr's account of the modern university? Right. And the way in which he wants to say that government funding of science transformed the nature of universities, right? As universities now became, right, uh, tied to uh, the defense industry, business, and the like, and how it changed the nature of governance of the universities with boards of trustees and the like. So there's that one strand. Then there's this. Then there's the implications of the 1960s as universities as hotbeds of radicalism and the ways in which um, the political climate shifted, particularly by 1980 and Reagan's election, and how universities have been seen as perhaps the last bastion uh, of, of a certain kind of liberalism. So they're always under attack, right? These colleges and universities. We see this now with the current debate around free speech, right? And then there's the over, and underneath it all is the, is the economic philosophy, as, 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 you lay, as you laid out, saying about neoliberalism, right? Which has just simply, as its goal, uh, producing a kind of precarity among workers generally, so they can't organize, they're too busy trying to live. So how do we give an account of the accelerated nature of content, given those very different strands? Right? And they're working at the same time. And of course, that is combined with the 2008 economic collapse, which then led to some of us not retiring because our 401ks are, have been devastated. And there's just a clock because we can't retire. And then we're still producing PhDs, right? The ethics of programs continuing to monetize their graduate programs and produce people with, with degrees with, the, with no jobs. So, and these are very different causal accounts, right? So how do we manage that? That's just 
me thinking out loud. It was triggered by your amazing talk. So anyone, if you want to take that jumbled mess. I'll, I'll start with, that was a very big question. Uh, so I'm going to start with what I understood of it. <laughs> um, I mean, I think for me, what you've outlined is obviously a classic case of late stage capitalism, right? That we become economic actors. And in order to increase profits or revenue streams, you need to discipline troublesome parts of your institution. Um, I mean, for me, these are all representative, right? So the 60s were a hotbed of liberalism. What do you need to do? You need to cut down on the ability of people to work and have the ability to agitate in the same way. Um, so part of it is instituting student discipline codes that, you know, you may not disrupt a speaker anymore, right? We saw this, I think, most prominently with the Irvine 11, who were, um, I think, threatened with expulsion. I don't think all of them were expelled. Somebody may remember the details better than I, uh, over protesting a um, pro-Israeli speaker on campus. Uh, but we see this now with some of the free speech debates. But nowhere in that free speech debate do we talk about the fact that for people who do Islamic studies, groups like Campus Watch were coming around and reporting on us and saying, you can't say what you want to say, right? And, and well, that was a problem. And of course, the universities didn't know quite how to respond to that because we really don't need the aggravation, but it looks really bad if we're telling people they can't say what they want to say. Um, and so it sort of just quietly went away as people who had public opinions weren't hired, right? And this is the scuttlebutt within my field. We don't, it's always hard to say, you weren't hired because you have a brain. But, you know, there's always that sense that we've been disciplined, right? And we've been brought under control. So for, in my mind, that's the grand unifying theory of everything. How do we increase our revenue streams? And that means getting people to shut up. But that's what I understood of the question. Yeah. So there was, there was a lot there. But again, we would invite you to come. There's a lot to talk about. So please, if you have a question or a concern. And if you need access to the microphone, please let us know and we'll make sure one gets to you. Hi, Megan Sweeney from Boston College, full-time, non-tenure track. Uh, when she came to our university ethics conference this past spring, Maria Maisto of the new faculty majority said that for contingent faculty, the guilds will be the places of organizing, not necessarily the universities themselves. So I'm wondering, how do we as the AAR and our brothers and sisters in the SBL, how are we going to, at least within the discipline of religious studies and theology, uh, affect better um, conditions for contingent faculty, especially those who are piecemeal adjunct trying to make a life? Thank you. Karen. Yeah, well, um, well, we've got signs. <laughs> the signs is our first step education. Um, so yeah, I, this is what we're working on, and we really welcome suggestions. We're looking at a variety of different possibilities of, you know, do, we, do people need resources brought to them through local programming? Is there a way to more target department chairs um, about what can be done? We've had some conversation around um, how free um, speech intersects with contract renewal, um, and some interesting cases have arisen where the language of uh, contract renewal is, is uh, basically calling people's speech, either in an explicit way or an implicit way. So that's another area we thought of, where can we target, where's the best place to kind of for the, to, to move our efforts. 
Um, I think that it's going to have to take, though, learned societies and universities, right? It has to take both of them working together fundamentally. Um, I know that the, Ameri uh, the Council of Learned Societies, David Watt, I think, you're one of our AARs reps that. I think there's beginning to be an awareness, but it's a slow awareness about these issues in terms of the group level. But there has been all kinds of movements in terms of the learned societies, which is hopeful, and here, obviously, as well. Um, so I think part of our job will be trying to give people tools to advocate at different levels, right, wherever they can best advocate. So that's, I think, what we're looking forward to doing. I, I just want to say as well, if I may, Carrie, I really want to thank Eddie for being our presider here because it is huge to have the president of the AAR doing this for yes. us. I mean, this is a sign of commitment, I think, from the institution. So really, sincerely, thank you for agreeing to do this because it really, I think, sends such a strong message to our membership, so. Thank you. Um, I would also say that, you know, the, the, at the level of governance of the AAR, uh, there's now a board of, there's a director, Carrie, um, that's elected, that re represents the contingent faculty, right? And then there's the statements that we've been working on. The challenge has always been is that this is a, you know, the AAR is a big tent. And it's not just, you know, so you have constituencies from a variety of different places within universities battling it out. But we wanted to, to, we have, at the level of governance, the board, it's now contingent faculty are represented at the level of the board. And the board is, I would say, very committed and knowledgeable on these issues and right. is taking seriously the changing, um, the, the changed nature of the landscape of higher education and what it means for students, what it means for faculty, what it means for learned societies. So. Um, I'm very hopeful about that. And given you a sense of our commitment, uh, the, the person who will be the president within a couple of hours <laughs> is at the microphone, David Gush. Uh, thank you. I, 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 there was no way I was going to miss this session. I'm, I'm still devastated by it. Um, there's a, a lot of different ways in which it affected me, but I thought I would highlight one. Uh, ever since I did my dissertation on the Nazi era, I have been struck by uh, the human tendency to use euphemisms um, in order to hide uh, immoral realities. Hmm. And um, Jim Keenan's um, just mentioning that there's a category of professor at your school called professors of practice reminds me of other schools I have run into in which uh, new um, terms for types of faculty have been developed and it's more clear to me now than ever that these these terms are euphemisms instead of saying what these positions really are you dress it up in some kind of vocabulary that makes it look a little bit better than it is professor of practice what does that even mean that, that somehow they know something about the practice of a discipline that other people don't know or it's it's a euphemism as far as i can see and the same thing at other schools. So what we're dealing with is uh, guilty conscience hidden in euphemism. Um, so can you talk about that and maybe how that's also playing out at other schools? So Professor the Practice is a dated expression. Um, it's actually for people who are coming from some sort of expertise to teach in the classroom. Maybe they want to teach about finance. Maybe they want to teach about medicine. Maybe they want. So they were identified as professors of the practice. 
more and more universities, and I think to their credit, and therefore I completely disagree with you, are actually trying to um, provide greater stability in their contracting with um, full-time contracted adjunct faculty. This, this, so that I, when, whenever we try have conversations about adjunct faculty, the, the full-time contracted are very different from the piecemeal, um, you know, the individual course like what uh, Cameron was uh, talking about going to three different places. The, these are things that are, are out there. I, I do think that the attention that we give to the former is a way of distracting us from any accountability in the latter. But this is still happening at a place where there is no self-reflection about whether what they're doing is ethical. I mean, I did a study of how many uh, works have been written on university ethics. There aren't any. I mean, it's astonishing because there are over some 4,000 books on legal ethics. They were written by professors at university. There are 10,000 in medical ethics. They're not written by doctors. They're written by professors at universities. Nursing ethics has 3,000 books. There's this. This is the only book that's on university ethics that's been written. There's some called academic ethics that's a, a book that's about uh, um, tenured faculty, and in those books, they have never, ever mentioned a contingent faculty member at all. So you, what we're dealing with, I think Megan's question saying that we can go to the guilds is very important, and that the guilds are trying to do something is important. But the universities have no habitual practice of self-reflection about whether or not anything they do is ethical their tuitions, their athletes, the way they treat contingent faculty. There is no track record. I mean, major financial institutions are much more ethically upright than the university, um, simply because they've been held accountable, but we have not. And we, as faculty, have never exercised any of that self-reflection, nor have our administrators. Just really one quick, quick, question, quick question, Jim. Is I'm just struck by the analogy because I was struck by your talk. Um, I think one of the interesting dimensions of, of the problem that we, we've described is the increasing professionalization of academic spaces, right? And, and in, in, in the interesting sorts of ways, um, uh, your description of, of how we function is a description that presupposes how other professions function. Right, so you have an ethics for the legal profession, you have an ethics for the medical profession. There is a presumption that the academy isn't that, but, right? So it seems that to, to assume is, is who to- Who teaches those courses? Who teaches legal ethics? Professors do. Who teaches medical ethics? Professors. Who establishes the ethical standards in corporations, or in medicine, or in law, or in nursing, or in journalism? Professors do, but we have not done anything about at the institution that employs us. Yes. Yeah. Sorry. I'm oh, sorry. Uh, good evening. Uh, Mario Melendez, uh, graduate of the BU School of Theology and former student of Cameron. Like many in this room, we have been shocked by the news that in the current tax uh, 
proposal, the, the loss of tuition waivers. I mean, to many of us in this, to many of us in this room, uh, grad school would have been just out of our grasp without those tuition waivers. Um, and I'm, I've been trying to think to myself, what can be done because the, the usual avenue of the vote may not work this time because by the time, because let us, for the sake of argument, let us say that this thing passes. It doesn't necessarily mean that, that, that the, the vote in 2018 would have any effect. So my question is, what can be done? I, I would have thought that the presence of the, of the many universities in the country uh, would have reached out to those members of Congress that they themselves went to grad school and they would not be in their, they would not be holding those seats unless they went to law school and med school and so on and so on. So what can be done to push back? Uh, this is very specific. Something as terrible as getting rid of, because you get rid of tuition waivers, I fear that what would be the pool of people that will be going to grad school 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now? Please. Priya? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, w I wish I, I had an answer for that. Uh, I, I don't know. I'm not, I mean, I'm a graduate student, obviously, and um, it's like on top of everything that we deal with now, like, we're not going to you know, be able to waive our tuition. Um, I don't know how it is at other universities, but I pay $700 in fees per semester. That is not waived, is not counted. Um, if I teach over the summer, um, I have to sign up for a course in order to be able to teach. If I sign up for a course um, to be able to teach, I am charged a fee for having access to the gym, which I never go to, right? So I am paying $300 to sign up for a course I've been told I have to sign up for in order to teach, right? And it's the most ridiculous thing. And the only reason I'm teaching over summer is because I don't get paid over summer. And then I get $3,000 for the entire summer. So this is the bind I'm already in. And now I can't even get my, my tuition waived. Um, and it's, um, it goes back to the point that you made. Like, you know, why should I have already burdened with all of this already, and now I have to take up another fight? You know, I, the finances are already an issue. Dealing with my department's an already issue. Leading the graduate students is already an issue. You know, and I, I totally understand. Like, I'm kind of tired. <laughs> it's, it's exhausting. Um, and yet, I, I, like you, want to know what I can do, right? Is there something very specific that I can do? I've already texted my senators and whatever, you know. I've already used ResistBot <laughs> as much as I can. So what, what's my next step? Um, I don't know. I, I think the other issue is how we are learning about this tax plan and its impact on graduate students. Like, I learned about the news through Facebook, on social media. I didn't find it out by my university. 
Um, and I, I don't think that many, I would wonder how many people here, when they, how they learned about it, either by the media or by social media, or did they learn it by their actual employees who raised this issue that they wanted the university to know about it? And I suggest that it's by media and not by the institution that employs and also has graduate students in the first place, which is, goes to my point. So I think I want to make two sets of comments, one a little bit more theoretical and one a little bit more practical. Um, in terms of thinking through, well, what about the members of Congress who went to graduate school? Many of them who have degrees in the humanities and social sciences are people who already voted against the bill because it's very clearly driven along party lines. Graduate, so Democrats. On the Republican side, the people who have graduate degrees tend to be lawyers and doctors who have been arguing for a long time that the purpose of higher education is to help you get a job. So if it's not practical, it's pointless. And many universities ceded that ground by increasing funding towards STEM programs because those were practical degrees and cutting the humanities and social sciences. So in other words, we've already lost a lot of the rhetorical ground. Um, and I, it's not accidental. And again, you have people who, and I will be very political about this because this is politics and we need to name names, right? Donald Trump's family paid for him to go to Penn. Jared Kushner's family paid for him to go to Harvard. And so they see it as, why well, I didn't get a tax break to give $5 million for my son Jared to go to school. So why should anybody else get a tax break for these purposes? And so in their mind, the only people who should be going to school are people like them who can already afford to go, right? It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Now, on the practical side, I, uh, Inside Higher Education did run an article earlier, what day are we? Saturday? So last week, this is the joy of AR, right? I don't know what day of the week it is. I don't know what, it's like, it's like Vegas. I don't know what time of day it is. Um, just less fun. Um, Last week, Insider Higher Education ran an article about the ways in which university presidents are, in fact, mobilizing against this. Mm -hmm. But it seems, from my perspective as an outside political viewer, there's not going to be any traction. We have ceded so much ground on the rhetoric of the value of higher education. There's no way you're going to mobilize people around this. The way you mobilize this is that if you have a private jet, you get a tax break. If your child is dying of chemo, you have to pay more in taxes. Right? That's the way you sell voting down this bill in the Senate. Uh, nobody gives two squats about higher ed because higher ed hasn't given two squats about higher ed. So The irony is that people have used that analogy. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I mean, mean, so that, folks are trying to do it, and then they, they're also doing, you get a tax break for owning a jet, and you can't you know, deduct, if you're a teacher, your purchase of school supplies. School supplies, right, that's we, the other one. We also saw just this past, over the last couple of days, articles in the Washington Post, the New York Times, and on NPR about this particular tax on graduate tuition. In effect, the headline in the Washington Post was the tax bill will destroy graduate education in the United States. Right. Right. So there, there is some mobilization that's happening, but I think you're right. It's not gonna get traction. That's what I'm worried about. Yeah, Curtis? Uh, Curtis Hunt, University of Nebraska at Omaha. I have two questions. I don't know if they're related. I think they might be, but uh, first, the statistics that were shared earlier about the growth of administration, of administrators, what do you think is behind that? I mean, that's really an, uh, amazing uh, figures that were shared with us. Um, secondly, at the University of Nebraska, we've had uh, budgetary problems, I think because of the price of corn or something like that. Uh, 
for the last couple of years and going forward, uh, it looks like the state is not going to be funding education uh, in, in the way maybe that it had in the past. Um, the people that are actually, I think the administrators think are saving us, and I myself have benefited, uh, private donors step in and they establish, uh, you know, whether it's endowments or centers or this or that. Um, but it seems to me that this oftentimes comes with strings. Um, perhaps you could comment on the situation with donors as well. Thank you. Uh, sure. Well, I have a, a, a colleague who likes to talk about the idea of finding um, a donor to give a adjunct faculty endowment. And I'm like, well, we're going to have to wear t-shirts then, right? This adjunct brought to you by so-and-so. <laughs> you can't have your name on a building. We're going to have our names. Right? So, uh, but it also speaks to universities just don't want to prioritize it, right? How do we really get in there and, and try to make the case somehow, it's going to take people at all different levels, to reprioritize where the money's going fundamentally? Um, and you mentioned about the administrator's salaries. I think part of this is, is I understand, particularly in the nonprofit world, I worked in the nonprofit world before doing my PhD, that there is a sense sometimes that the old way of doing things is too slow or cumbersome. We need, you know, be up to date, new innovative thinking, so we'll turn to our competitive business world and take best practices. And I think the instinct there is good to streamline, right, to be more efficient in some ways, that's good. But sometimes then I think what happens is people create a myth that you have to pay people huge amounts of money to get them to stay for a job. But oftentimes it's your, um, the purpose that you find in your work, the community that you have that keeps you in a job, right? And so I think sometimes that, that culturally we, we, um, we, the story we tell is always about the money, right? To keep people, it takes a lot of money and people are, are looking to increase, increase, increase what they're making. But I'm not sure that's the reality. Sure, some people that's the truth. But I think for a lot of people, finding a community that they love, right, and being able to find purposeful work will keep people there. So let me just ask the question, because I heard the question slightly differently, okay, but even if I didn't, I'd be curious to see your thoughts on this, which is, what do you think about the, what's fueling the growth of the number of administrators that, that, that's grown so much, rather than just their salary? I'd say multiple. Part of it is an increase in student services, and some of that is good, I'd say. I mean, there are, I, we need to be tending to, to the health of our students, and we need to be tending to students who maybe before have different styles of learning who couldn't be there, so I think some of that's positive. Um, I do think, though, that there has been a movement to, to really view higher education as a product that's being sold, and I think that's fundamentally, yeah, uh, corrosive to the whole project. Anybody yeah. else? Yeah. yeah, I'm just going to add to that, and the, the narratives about that huge um, growth of um, administrative positions has been connected to the huge growth, the money that's being poured into stadiums, into the, the branding of large universities and their sports programs that are usually certain sorts of sports over others like football, um, and connected also with facilities, um, huge dorms that are more luxurious than they might have been in previous years, like the whole kind of corporatization of the university system that all these things are seen kind of as part of each other, I think that could be overbroad narrative. There are obviously huge advantages to the different sorts of positions that various administrators have, I would say, but um, that narrative tends to be kind of plotted in that way that I don't think is totally wrong. I think the three areas that you see the most growth uh, at the university is development, 
information services, and athletics. Um, that's where you see more administration and budgetary growth, those three areas. There's also, I think, a relationship between the expansion of administrations and the attempt to diminish the power of faculties. Right. So, so the, the, the story of the precarity of, of the professoriate is actually tied to the expansion of administrators. Yes. David Watt, I teach at Haverford College. Um, so there's an awful lot more that the AR could be doing than it is doing. Um, and I'm convinced that the members of the AR are not more energetic or more moral than those of other learned societies. And yet it seems to me that there is a fact, it's just a fact that there are very few learned societies in which I could imagine the president and soon to be president at a session like this. I don't know of any learned societies that has a representative of contingent faculty. I don't think so. So I'm not asking for self-congratulation here, but I do really want a kind of reflection about the AR. What is it about the way the AR is structured or about who its members are that have has made it so much more willing to engage with these difficult issues. Just to do a plug for another guild uh, that Carrie and I and David work, the Society of Christian Ethics with the Society of Jewish Ethics and the study for this, uh, the Society for the Study of uh, Islamic Ethics. Um, we, I think we're just as strong as you are here. Um, but we do have the word ethics in our title, so it's kind of <laughs> like um, shame. You know, guilt is one thing, but shame is awfully effective. Um, so I, I, I think it's, you know, like when I've talked at the Society of Christian Ethics, and the two times that I've spoken, um, I'd say that 10% of the audience were tenure line faculty, so that. Uh, when you asked the same, when you asked the uh, hand raise, and we could see that it was really split here, that's really a good sign. I think that's a sign that actually we would find at the Society, because we're doing something at this, we're doing two events at the Society of Christian Ethics next January, and I imagine we'll see finally the tenure line faculty joining in on that. So the, there are two sister organizations that I think have similar interests, in part because of their mission. I think, David, there, there, there's a general trend line across learned societies that we're beginning to see a decrease in membership. And that decrease in membership, of course, is affecting bottom lines in a number of different ways, and people are trying to account for that decrease. And part of that account involves the expansion of contingent faculty who are having to make uh, choices about finite resources and what to do with them, right? So there's that, I think that's one thing. And I also think the activism within the AAR, right? So there, there were a group of folks who got together and really pushed and pushed this question and pushed it hard. Uh, and there's a presidential line that came into view that was open to it in a way. So I think it's a convergence of that fact. Uh, so I wanna say that it's not a top-down reality, Right? It's actually a bottom-up reality, right? that the membership has been pushing the organization. And, and I think 
representation at the level of the board is one consequence of that, and it's still going to happen. It's st we're still pushing forward. Would you would you agree with that, Karen? Absolutely. I do think there's more movement. Um, the MLA, the American um, Historical Association, a couple other learning societies have been moving on this, so that's happening. Um, I think we might be just happen to be a little ahead of the curve right now, but I'm not sure if that's going to stay. Um, but I think what um, Eddie pointed out is right. Part of it is is just thinking strategically and survival um, because of the drop in membership. Um, and but the other piece too is I I know even if people don't talk about them, they do question them, right? So even even though sometimes tenure track have blinders on, they, it's kind of culpable blindness, <laughs> right? They do see what's happening. And so I do think as things have shifted more and more, as uh, more unions um, have come to campuses, that's also forcing the conversation. The one thing that um, AAR has done that I don't know of yet, and, and hopefully we'll see how we do this weekend, but I don't know of any other learned society that has given table space to different unions to be present at. So that's a pretty, um, I'm very, delighted by that step, though, as I said before, you know, unions are not a panacea, but they do require, it makes a legal requirement, right, for universities to negotiate with adjuncts. And without that, you often just, they don't have necessarily a reason to. Um, so that's, I think, a very important piece to, to continue to talk about unionization, though unionization is only part of a much larger conversation. And I just want to put a footnote here, is that the, the, the AAR is also made up of members who are presidents, deans, yeah provosts, uh, people who are actually implementing the policies that we're describing. And so the one of the biggest challenges about this organization is that we're in fact a huge tent. Uh, and there's this constant negotiation and navigation of various constituencies that have various reads on the reality that we're talking about now. And what you see here today with myself and David is a commitment on the part of the leadership at this point around this question, right, in, in, in a very substantive and clear way. But that's not to deny that there aren't different constituencies at work within this large organization. Hi, uh, my name is Nathan Ryan. I teach at our Sinus College near Philadelphia, um, a very, very small school. I, I'm part of the administrative bloat. Um, I'm a dean. <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah, thanks. <laughs> um, I have a, I mean, a couple of themes that have really jumped out at me from this um, are, are, you know, for, first of all, that I'm, I'm appreciative of the fact that people have tried to tie what's happening in higher education to broader trends across the economic landscape um, and the political landscape, because I think that's really, really crucial. I mean, it seems to me that, you know, you can't make a living as a journalist anymore. You can't make a living as a cab driver anymore. Um, you know, pretty soon, you know, it's harder and harder to make a living as a lawyer than, you know, that used to be. Um, and so why should you be able to make a living as a, you know, as a professor, right? Um, and that's the direction that this country is headed. Um, <clears throat> and when I look at the sort of the, the transformations that have, that have happened in my small institution in terms of the growth of administration over the past 10, I mean, I've been there for 15 years. And I only, just, just to be clear, I only became a dean about a year ago. Um, and the, the transformations that I've seen is, you know, we've gone from having one part-time psychologist on staff to now having six. Um, we have a full-time Title IX coordinator. Um, we have, uh, you know, we have an information technology person. We have a, you know, we have a communications officer that we didn't used to have. Um, you know, things like that, which, which to me are actually, you know, these are all people, in my experience, who are 
deeply, deeply committed to the mission of the institution and really want to be there for the students. <clears throat> but it's tremendously expensive. Um, we've also seen our tuition sort of steadily dropping. Um, uh, sorry, not tuition, enrollment. Okay. I, I wish. Yeah. Okay. No, our, enro our enrollment's been you know shaky and going down. Our discount rate's been going up. Um, <clears throat> and so I, I guess what I'm sort of seeing here is um, sort of a tension between attacking these problems as seeing them as a bunch of misplaced priorities within institutions on the one hand, or on the other hand, seeing them as, you know, just part of a massive assault on sort of the professional middle class and, you know, the sort of the existence of, I mean, I not to be, you know, too melodramatic about it, but, you know, it's really sort of part of the existence of civil society um, and the, the existence of a professional, you know, world of expertise um, across the U.S. and across, you know, a lot of the rest of the world, too. So I guess my question really comes down to, it seems to me that the, the conclusion that I come to from hearing what you've been saying is that institutions of higher education might, may have the capability of trying to stand up against some of these broader societal trends, um, broader economic trends, um, you know, via cultivating some kind of internal solidarity you know, um, connecting guilds with institutions. I sort of wonder, um, you know, about, for example, the role of the AAUP. You know, if there's if there's connections to be made between, you know, AAR, MLA, and, you know, organizations like the AAUP. Um, <clears throat> but what are some of the ways, in, in your mind, that we might be able to exert some pressure on our institutions to take a, a more active role um, in fighting some of these trends. I mean, I, you know, it's like my president, I think, is still trying to work out a way to respond to the, you know, DACA stuff from like, you know, three months ago or right. however long it was. I mean, we move slow. You Thank know? you so much. Please. Anyone? No. Um, thanks, Nathan. Um, I don't, so look, I don't think all administrative bloat is bad, right? I mean, we need something. Carrie's talked about increasing access. Um, you know, but I also think some of the roles are emblematic of the deeper structural issues with the university. So the reason we need a Title IX coordinator, and we've seen this from the lawsuits, from the implementation of Title IX, through the various lawsuits, is that we, for some reason, have a really hard time accepting the fact that women are people, right? And that's an ongoing concern. Um, I think that's a problem of university ethics, right? That we can't recognize women are people, people of color are people, economically marginalized people are people, trans people are people, gay people are people, like we can just go down the list and we have a hard time structurally with that. Um, I really think that one of the ways in which we have neutered ourselves and I think one of the ways in which we can claim back uh, a relevance, and I don't mean that necessarily in, in an economic speak, is to bring back some of our moral voices. When we think about the orators of the 20th century, right? We talk about Reverend Martin Luther King, but he was Dr. Reverend Martin Luther King. We talk about Malcolm X, he didn't have a formal degree, but he was disturbingly well-educated for somebody who ended up with no degrees, right? I don't mean disturbingly in a negative way, but incredibly well-educated. We think about the Niebuhrs, right? 
and the role that they played, or Abraham Joshua Heschel. You know, I'm sticking with religious people because of where we are. But the ways in which we want that depth of knowledge, that, that, that analytic insight, and that depth of commitment to community that is sort of lacking. And I think by keeping people from expressing opinions in public voices or, or seeing their work as having some meaning besides getting published in journals, the universities have assured that there is no meaning to the university other than to, to train uh, people who speak for the university. And I, so for me, I think that's a quick, easy thing. Let the faculty loose, cut them loose, let them be these voices. Um, and say that if you want moral clarity, yes, it's gonna come from seminaries, but it's also gonna come from universities. We are part of that civil society that should be holding power accountable, not subsuming our will to the structures of power or, or participating in those, in those uh, structures of power. Um, sorry, that's the, the high horse. I don't even know if that's what you were asking anymore at this point, I think, but that's, yeah. I was gonna say something along the uh, same lines in terms of one, I think we have to start thinking very creatively and differently than we have about the academy before, I think, and one of the ways that we can do that is trying to give people credit, right, um, at least some type of, of credit, whether they be tenure line or not, for public engagement, right? I mean, why shouldn't community engagement mean something, <laughs> right, in terms of review? Why shouldn't giving back immediately to your community on the local level matter for the types of communities we want to create? Um, so I think there is potential there if people are willing to take some risks and try out new models for what, what could be. I think that could be one, one approach to it. Um, I'd also say that in terms of um, particularly around contingent faculty, one of the challenges is people have tended to think about it differently than other types of, of work on campus, which I think is odd. Um, so we recently had a conversation about trying to you know, increase the average course compensation through union negotiations. And, and some tenure line um, and some administrators really saw it as a stipend. Right, that you receive a stipend, even though you may have had your, you know, PhD ten years or whatever, that you're getting a stipend, and that it shouldn't increase with longevity. This was to me the fascinating part, right? That that you come in, you do your job, and you leave, but you shouldn't get paid more if you have taught that course for longer. Everybody should get the same, and that's a good thing because we're treating all of our part-time people equally, right? And you're kind of going, wait a second, wait a second, you know. If you're full-time, you get cost of living increases, you get merit review, you have some other mechanisms, right, to reward you for your work, and there's a recognition that your work gets richer and stronger as you build communities and knowledge about the institution, and none of that matters when it comes to contingent faculty, right? And maybe other types of workers as well, but it should, right? The relationship piece should matter. Um, and I know it's easy to say it should matter, but I do think um, that there can be uh, ways to try to reframe these things. And I think the challenge is always been at, at multiple levels, right? That tension that you spoke to, I think, is, is right. It's a larger economic trend, but it's also decisions made within the university. So it just has to be at multiple levels. I don't think there's much um, transparency at the university. And I think because of that, the university is not a credible moral institution. Hmm. Um, if, for instance, if it wasn't for the chronicle of higher education, we would not know the disparities of salaries at universities. If it wasn't for new faculty majority, we wouldn't know the disparities about contingent faculty salaries. These are done by journalists who manage to ferret out hidden documents to know. So who is the best 
who is the most highly um, salaried person at a university? Is it the athletic director? Is it the dean of the law school? Is it the dean of the business school? Is it the president? The, you know, all these questions are coming out from journalists, but they're not disclosed by the university. The university has an aversion to transparency. So you can think of whenever there's a sexual assault on the university, look what the Obama administration had to do in issuing its white paper to compel, compel most of the Ivies alone to report um, candidly and truthfully on what their uh, rate of sexual assault was and how that was an address. So the university has really very little moral standing. It, it, there's a fiction that goes on, but in terms of the actual uh, exercise of ethics, um, it's 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 much uh, it's it's been it's been the critique of the university has not happened the way the critique of Dow Chemical did, and um, we need to see more of that to compel uh, transparency at the university. I think transparency is the biggest problem of the university. No, please. Pre if I can just follow up with the point about uh, public engagement. It's coming. Oh, okay. That, uh, the point that was made just briefly about public engagement, um, the professors at my university, the ones that are paid the most, are being paid the most because they produce the most scholarship, right? The faculty member that has engaged with the public the most has not received tenure. And she's not received tenure because she's too busy actually being engaged in the community to publish as much as some of the other faculty. Right? And so that means that the faculty are emphasizing publication to their graduate students. That means that the graduate students are also engaging in the public as well. They're concentrating on making publications as well so that they could eventually get hired. And when you, they do go for these job interviews, no one's looking at the bottom part of your uh, CV to see how engaged you are with the public. So I think we've really diminished and not valued how much we are participating in our local community, right? And so I think that's also a factor here. Yeah, it's, uh, just, it's just, yeah, it, these things get coded uh, within our departments as a distraction. Yes. What, what gets to count as a distraction yes, sort exactly. of has amazed me over the years. Yeah. Um, and I appreciate what you were saying about the stipend kind of coding as well, or maybe it's not always actively said as such, but occasionally it is. Um, and there can be in these um, one-off um, or you know piece more piecemeal situations an assumption that it's a feather in somebody's cap to be able to go and do that. It's not actually someone's livelihood um, to do these these uh, part-time gigs, and um, that assumes quite a lot about um, who's able to do that. If they have you know if they make enough money in whatever else they do, or if they're you know, in a partnership or marriage where the other person's able to carry the burden. I mean, it just carries all sorts of assumptions. Hi, my name is Susan Hill. I uh, teach at a public institution, so I would just say my, uh, our salaries are completely uh, available for everyone to see. So, I mean, there is transparency in some way. And we're also uh, struggling a lot with how to think about community engagement as, uh, as promotable labor. So that kind of thing is happening, I think, in the world. 
I would like to, I'm fascinated by the fact that we've had this entire conversation and, and tenure has not come up as a, as a big piece of this conversation. So I am a tenured full professor. My partner is a renewable term instructor. And um, one of the things that I notice, because I have an administrative position as well, is that we have at our institution any number of incredibly awesome instructors who are getting paid about two-thirds what the tenured faculty are getting paid, who are on you know year-long, uh, year two or th even three-year contracts, who teach more and better, who um, publish, who do an enormous amount of service for the institution, and the tenured faculty in their department don't do nearly as much work as they are. And that particular ethical issue is a huge issue for me personally, but also just because I watch my colleagues who are doing all of this labor and I see other colleagues who are not doing anything. They're not doing scholarship, they're not doing service, they're barely teaching their classes and they're getting paid an enormous amount of money. And so how do we, how do we what, what is the mechanism for accountability and is the, is the thing that needs to happen getting rid of tenure? Jim, this, this, will, be the last, this will be the last question, so we'll allow you to start and we'll go well, from we there. We do have a panel on that tomorrow, <laughs> at the end of tenure, <laughs> from 1 to 2.30, um, so please check that out. I think that's a serious issue, and you, there's, you know, there are places that, that don't have adjunct faculty because they've been able to retain tenure, and there are places where tenure is simply not going to come back. And so I think, again, it has to look at a, a number of different strategies. I think one of the issues has come up, well, what if we just had you know, longer multiple-year contracts? But even then, that gets troublesome. You know, how, long, how long is enough to build a life, to allow for life to happen, for babies to be born, for parents to die, for uh, marriages to fall apart, what, what, what's, you know, if, for people to get to know their community and get to know their institution, how, how do you frame that? Um, and then I've heard mentioned before, well, what if we had 15-year contracts, but then what happens if that 15-year contract doesn't get renewed, right? You know, so, so I think there's a rich conversation has to have about what are really uh, viable alternative models, um, because I don't think it's going to come back. And the challenge, I think, is even when they do come back a little bit, what happens is often a displacement of the older adjuncts, right? That the, the younger PhDs are going to be hired for those positions, and those who've been doing the work steadily are not considered for those jobs, right? And that's, uh, to me, a, a fundamentally ethical uh, problem. <laughs> yeah. I think that the way you described um, you know, how tenured faculty are as opposed to um, what I would call professor of the practice, full-time contingent faculty. Um, yeah, I know, but I think you're spot on. Um, I would like to, in particular, note that uh, I have found that with tenure track uh, applicants, that when they start at a university, their blinders are now on on research, accountability to the chair, and teaching. They do not participate, nor do they know much about what's happening at the university. There's a, a way that they've withdrawn themselves because their mentors, 
what you were talking about earlier, their mentors advise them not to get buried down because they're supposed to solely do research. So we had a big, we had a racial incident at our university two and a half years ago. I hosted a race panel. We had 400 people at it. I asked the tenure track people how many of them went to. There were 450 people there. I asked how many of the tenure track, they didn't know about the race panel that many of the university people, but all 18 of the professors of the practice were there and many of their colleagues. And that was just, that's an anecdotal point. But I, what I'm trying to say is that the future of tenure is in the tenure track line. And they're actually going in a more negative direction than the actual tenured faculty are. We, the reason why Maria Maestro calls it the new faculty majority is not simply numeric. It's because there's a new concept of faculty that's emerging by their practices. And that's what we're going to see happen. They're the only ones right now that are actually asking for horizontal accountability. Contingent faculty, whether through unions or not, are asking for horizontal accountability. And the tenured faculty still do not know how to ask for that, for that horizontal accountability. Well, we've come to the end of our time. I would, I would like to give everyone an opportunity for a closing remark really quickly, but um, if not. Thank you, please get involved. We're so glad that you're here. <laughs> please keep coming to our panels. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Likewise, yes. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs>